Welcome to Business Unmuted, sponsored by Virtue Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers. Check out its website at virtuemotors.com. I'm Graham Robb and I've owned Recognition PR for nearly 35 years. We've 75 clients in multiple sectors across the UK and between them they've got turnover of £6 billion and they employ around 30,000 staff. So we're at the front line of the business community and they're perfectly placed as a result to talk about the economic climate, which we're going to do today on this podcast. In the studio, we've Bob Borthwick, director at Scott Brothers, one of the northeast of England's leading recycling businesses. And down the line, we have Ben Saranko, senior research economist at the Institute of Fiscal Studies. And for later in the programme, when we're looking at issues relating to International Women's Day, we've Catherine Harland, founder of Menopause Mentor, who provides menopause awareness training and education for workplaces to support both managers and employees. So welcome to Business Unmuted. Welcome Thank all. You. Ben, I'm going to start you. with you. Next week, it's the budget. The Institute of Fiscal uh, Studies absolutely at the heart of providing commentary on these issues. Where do you see a snapshot of the UK economy just seven days before the budget? Well, Graham, the good news is that the economy is not in quite so dire straits as was predicted a few months ago. Gas prices have come down faster than expected. The economy has held up a bit better than expected. And so there are some signs of uh, optimism in the short term. I think looking beyond that, the economy is still in quite a difficult position. The public finances are still in quite a difficult position. There are some quite gloomy growth forecasts out there, uh, both historically speaking and compared to other countries. So we're definitely not out of the woods yet. And I think what we'll see in the budget is some notes of cautious optimism from the Chancellor, but a reluctance to make any big permanent tax cuts or spending promises that might not prove to be affordable if things turn out worse than expected. Of course, budgets are also uh, accompanied by official forecasts. I'm not talking about your forecasts, which are not official, but they're helpful. I'm talking about the Office of Budget Responsibility. Now, if you were to look at the Office of Budget Responsibility's track record on forecasts, it's wildly out by many billions of pounds. And um, if it had got the predictions of the economy right, the government might have had more money to spend than it actually did when it last had an OBR forecast. What's your view on that? I suppose as an economist, you'd probably want to crowd round and defend them, would you? Forecasting is an art. It's not a science. And it is inherently quite tricky. I try to forecast a very complex system with millions of agents and businesses and households all making decisions. It's very difficult to do that with any great, great degree of accuracy, particularly when you've got things like pandemics or global energy price shocks. Oh, we're having a little bit of sound disruption on your signal here, uh, Ben. We just had a bit of a, a brain freeze. I tell you what, we'll re-establish the link with you and go to Bob for a moment in the studio. We were just talking about, you heard what he had to say yeah, about that. What do yeah. you see the economy like? Well, the economy's obviously uh, on a downward spiral at the minute, certainly from a point of view, a business point of the view. The only thing worse, Tom. Go on. So Sorry, finish yeah, your point. Yeah. Yeah. So, so really, it, it's challenging for businesses in the economy at the moment. Obviously, this budget, pending budget, with its possibilities of corporation tax increases, there's also a fuel duty increase that they carried forward from the last budget. So, from our point of view, or certainly Scotland's point of view, that would be quite an impactful issue that we have if those particular tax 
increase has occurred next And if they didn't occur, would it make life considerably easier for you? It would make life easier because we go back to the forecasting that Ben said earlier, the business can forecast on the tax elements that it currently has. If if there's a tax change in fuel and uh, corporation tax, then that actually has a, a knock on effect for how the business forecasts going on. And obviously that will be whether we invest in certain things, whether we take on new employees, that sort of thing. Ben, you got interrupted on the signal there, but I think we've got you back now. So could you finish what you were saying about the economic climate? You said it wasn't that good, and I asked you about forecasting. You said it's an art, it's not a science, but it is also important from the point of view of the government because the forecasts will inform the decisions, won't they? Yes, sorry, I lost you there. What I was going to say is that the only thing worse than an an accurate forecast is having no forecast at all. You've got to base judgments on something and it's the obr's job to produce a central forecast upon which we can base our decisions now they're never going to turn out to be perfectly accurate but they're still a useful guide for where we might expect to be in a few years and so i wouldn't say that they've always been perfect they have been rather optimistic on average over the past 10 years particularly when it comes to things like productivity and investment and i think that part of the reason why the outlook now looks so gloomy is that we're catching up with that and we're now recognizing that things haven't turned out that positively over the past 10 years and now revising down our expectations for the future so imperfect but useful and important okay let's just look at a few things that really will contribute to the government's uh, thinking one of the things is interest rates because the government obviously has to pay interest on its massive borrowings and um, the federal uh, the chairman of the fed in america uh, is saying completely different things about interest rates than the uh, Bank of England. He Just this week, he was saying, front page of the Financial Times this week, that the Fed is going to continue to increase interest rates quite significantly. And that will affect the dollar-pound exchange rate and possibly lead the Bank of England to follow suit. What, what's your thought on that? Well, the first thing is, as you said, Graham, that higher interest rates mean that the government has to spend more servicing its debt. Now, this year and the next couple of years, the government's going to be spending many tens of billions of pounds extra on debt interest than what was previously expected. And that's tens of billions that can't then be spent on tax cuts for business or on higher spending on the health service. With regards to the Fed versus the Bank of England, the UK and the US are facing quite different economic circumstances at the moment. The UK is far more exposed to the Russian energy price shock, for example, than the US Mm. is. The US's inflation problem is Mm. far more domestically fueled. And so that's why you might see them ramping up interest rates to try and reduce that pressure. Whereas the key contribution to inflation here in the UK has been energy and things that we've imported from abroad. So it's a slightly different policy problem. We may well get further increases in interest rates from the Bank of England, but I think it's less nailed on than in the case of the Federal Reserve. I had hoped that interest rates were stabilizing now and i think many people in business had our shadow mpcs in the northeast and in yorkshire had said about where we are now is about where we should be but of course the worry is that if the dollar goes up in price against the pound things like oil and energy are priced in dollars and inflation will be brought in more pushing our interest rates up more there's definitely some merit to that argument 
an economics that when America sneezes, there's some spillover from the Fed when they make interest rate decisions that we might have to grapple with here in the UK. Okay. Now, when it comes to um, tax, Institute of Fiscal Studies, that's about tax and spending, where, where it all lies. Um, Bob, I'm going to ask Bob about tax first and then get your response. You were saying taxes are too high. Yeah. You were saying the planned tax increases on corporation tax mm -hmm. is alarming to your business. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. Put it in context for us. It's going up from 19 to 19 25%. to 25%. Yeah, so it's, it's going up uh, 6%, which is... What would it take out of your business next well, year? Well, obviously, it's going it's to... In, immediately, it's going to it's going to look at investment. We won't be we we'd be looking at cutting investment in. But in cash in the terms, business. is it tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands? In cash terms, it'll be hundreds of thousands. Hundreds yeah. of thousands. Yeah. That's quite yeah. significant. Yeah. In in the northeast of England, where the average job is mm. between twenty four mm. and thirty thousand, mm. that's quite yeah. a few jobs if it's hundreds Absolutely. of thousands. Yeah, yeah. And you were saying investment. Yeah. You've done a lot of investment mm -hmm. this year, and you did it. Presumably taking advantage of this super deduction scheme that they've yeah. got. Just yeah. explain that. What well, again, uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's something that's helped the business invest in, uh, in plant and equipment. Um, again, that's going to have a, a negative effect going forward if, if that, that is and, reduced. And, and again, we'd be looking at whether we invest in machinery, mm. plant. And so all this, this sort of incentive to invest clearly worked with you. Yes, it was it was a help to us expanding the business at the time. I, I wonder if that's because you're you've got foresight because no, still there is an investment lag in the country, isn't there? Not, yeah. not all businesses are really no. focused no. on investment the way no. you are, no. and it, it it maybe hasn't worked in the right mm. way. Mm. But you were of the view keep it and continue the incentive, keep the status quo, keep with the incentive. You know, it's it's if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it is broke, then fix it. But I can't see whether it's broke, to All right. be quite honest, to Let, be fair. Let's ask Ben. I'm not trying to set you up to argue necessarily with Bob, because <laughs> but maybe you could explain it in what the rationale is about putting corporation tax up. And I know it's not your policy, but what's it, what's it work? How's it, how's it, how would it work for, the, for our economy if firms like Bob's don't invest? Well, the UK has got a chronic low investment problem, and one of the reasons why our economic performance and our productivity hasn't been so great over the past couple of decades is, is partly due to that low level of investment. I think Bob's touched on something really important, which is as well as the headline rate, things like the super deduction and things like investment allowances can also be really important here. So one thing we've seen since 20 was reductions in the headline rate of corporation tax coupled with um, cutting back the generosity of investment allowances. And combined, that meant that we actually cut the headline rate, but raised a similar amount. Sorry, I'm not sure if my internet's going again. I, I can hear you, tell right. you so. stay on with it. Um, I'll carry on. Um, so I think where we're at now is potentially going back to a world where we increase the headline rate again, but maybe do more work on investment allowances, for example, making the the annual investment allowance is now set to be held at a million pounds instead of be higher than where it was before. And we might see further announcements on that in the budget next week, taking that route towards trying to incentivise business investment rather than changes in the headline rate. I think I can see the rationale in that. Um, but shareholders still need returns and shareholder returns are subdued if you've taken money away from tax. 
Um, and, and that's that's the that's the other that's the other thing because you that's need to give incentive yeah. to, mm -hmm. for people to actually invest yeah. in the companies in Absolutely. the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Ben, what about um, the need for government to raise tax? There, there are a lot of people, particularly in the Liz Trust part of conservative politics, who are of the view that you've got to just grit your teeth and cut tax and let the growth happen. The Rishi Sunak part of conservative politics is more like the Thatcher era of 1981, where they say you get tax under control by making sure you raise enough to pay for your spending. When you've got growth, you give tax cuts. Where do, you, where do you, is that a fair explanation of the dilemma that the government faces? I think that's definitely a big part of it. The other big thing that we have to recognise is that the pressures on government and government services are considerably greater than at certain points in the past, particularly in a post-pandemic era. Thinking about the pressures on the health service, uh, ongoing pressures from COVID, thinking about uh, the ageing of the population, which adds to pressures on things like pension spending, and now meaning we have to spend more on defence also. So there are big pressures on spending too. And if you want to do big cuts to tax, you've also got to recognise, you know, that comes with implications for how much we can afford to spend on things. And I think people are often much keener to advocate for tax cuts than they are for the spending cuts that might need to accompany them. All right, Ben, we're going to pause you there because of the, the line, but thank you very much for your contribution. I'm going to bring you back, Bob, yeah. because I know you're a quite yeah. a passion. You're, you're, you're not doing this for ideological reasons. No, no. But you want not. the money in your business to yeah. invest for you. But yeah. you could equally say that the people that represent the nurses want the yeah. money in the NHS yeah. to pay them a salary increase. How would you square that yeah. circle? I, under I understand the, that the conundrum of the public sector uh, spend. I mean, I know it's easy for me to sit here and say, well, the health service needs reforming, mm -hmm. uh, the welfare systems needs reforming. I mean, that's easy for me to say, sat but, here. But really, that, that needs to happen, in my opinion. So Th that, that you, needs you're to be after, reformed. you would say, look, let, give, us the, give us the tax cuts to allow yeah. us to invest. Mm -hmm. We'll raise the economy up, yeah. but actually take the money and invest it more wisely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. OK, I take the view that Rishi's taking about caution, more caution on the economy, because that, that, that's where I land. Mm. But uh, I, I think this, the, 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 the latter part, I simply see your point on. Yeah. It's got to be right. Look, I'm going to turn to our next subject in a minute. But before I do, you're, you were telling us about the, um, the investments you're making. Mm. What do you see the general economy like? You, you've talked about tax and your business, but in the Teesside and northeast of England, you're doing quite well, aren't you? There seems to be a lot of activity. Yeah, we, we've, I mean, we, we are busy. Um, we are, the, the, you know, there's, there's been no slacking from a workload point of view with the business. Um, there is a li little signs of housing market slowing down um, because we, an element of the business is skips and we're not getting the turnaround on the skips from the mm. uh, developers now. So we've got s skips actually st stood in this, on stock ready to go out so there is a sign that things are slowing down out there but still it's it's still very 
buoyant really at the moment. My great friend David Smith, who's the economics editor of the Sunday Times, has something he calls the skip index. <laughs> and he says you can judge an economy by the number of skips in a row. I think that's the house building sector as well, yeah. to be quite honest. They're, they're a barometer for the, uh, for the economy. If the, if the housing sector starts to slow down, then you know the economy is starting to contract a bit. Okay, Bob, Ben, thank you very much indeed for joining us. We're going to change the subject to close this uh, edition of uh, Business Unmuted because today, as we transmit this live, it's Wednesday the 8th of March and it's International Women's Day. This is the Northern Echo front page in the northeast of England. It, it has 50 women uh, who are excelling for the north of England. Uh, they're in sports, they're in politics, they're in business, academia, and it's a brilliant uh, uh, explanation of where women find themselves in our uh, social and our business life at the moment. Uh, but there are issues that are peculiar to women that we really also maybe need to address more widely in business. And joining me on the line is Catherine Harland, who's the founder of Menopause Mentor. Now, Menopause Mentor, her service, provides menopause awareness training for workplaces to support, man support managers and employees. Catherine, thank you for joining me. First of all, tell us what the issue is and how, how it affects workplaces. Where do I start, Graeme? Um, basically, um, first and foremost, it's not a legal requirement. Businesses are not legally required to have a menopause policy. Um, they obviously have a care of duty under the Equalities Act of 2010, but where it comes to menopause, it's not a legal requirement. Now, only back in January, I think it was January the 24th, um, the government responded to the Women and Equalities Committee who'd uh, recommended a lot of things to support women in the workplace and a lot of that was rejected, including mandatory training for GPs. GPs don't get mandatory training in medical school. Um, so while there's a lot of banging in the drum about how GPs are letting women down, ultimately, um, I've swore, the pendulum swung from me thinking this about five years ago, um, thinking this is ridiculous, GPs, you know, shouldn't know more, to think, well, hang on a moment, they're not getting the medical training, uh, mandatory training in menopause, so how on earth are they meant to support? And we know the state of the NHS, it's so super stretched, where do they have time at the moment to go and do outside external training? Mm. Um, I digress, going back to workplaces, um, it isn't a legal requirement, but this shouldn't stop any workplace, any organization, any employer from addressing this situation. This is as critical as mental health. And obviously it goes hand in hand, menopause and mental health. Now, what I will say, there is too much scaremongering narrative out there. It's not my job to frighten workplaces, frighten employers, um, or you know, drum up employees feeling worried. It's not about that at all. I'll give you some stats from the British Menopause Society. 25% uh, of women will sail through menopause, 25% um, will have debilitating symptoms, and 50% will have moderate symptoms. So that's 75% that's going to be nothing to moderate. Now that's quite a high percentage, that's quite satisfactory. Um, the 25% will struggle more and will have more mental health problems, anxiety, depression, low mood, etc. Um, every woman needs supporting and every workplace is different. So, you know, go from a, a supermarket checkout, a 
if you're having a hot flush and you're sat on the till compared to if you sat in an office where you can just get up and, and go and get some fresh air go and get a glass of water it varies so much from workplace to workplace and this is what i bring to my sessions um i work with the client we identify identify ways of um, supporting their employees um bringing in different uniforms if it's a uniform workplace breathable material it all sounds quite basic you know swapping desks around sitting near a window introducing fans um it's some things are quite basic to implement and cost effective there's a lot of things that aren't quite as straightforward um i think it's about knowledge is power and this is where we're struggling some um organizations um national organizations have really embraced this i don't know if i'm allowed to um mention companies on no, here no. obviously i'm not advertising i don't work for any of these but spec savers boots marks and spencers have really gone full pelt into organ um, menopause brain you see into supporting employees um and then you've got the other you know set of businesses who are either SMEs um they don't understand the implications but menopause employment tribunals have tripled in the last 2 years I... um and this is because managers don't know how to address it even some HRs they don't have a menopause policy they they make remarks that they might think is a joke but obviously it's not a joke to the woman that feels vulnerable who is then going through menopause um and have um some challenging symptoms um there's a there's a gap to be bridged um and basically it's not just about supporting managers and employers it's also about supporting employees mm. now if an employee doesn't know how to have a healthy menopause it's not good the manager then knowing how to support them it's a two way street you know so i'll give you an example if an employee is still drinking what they used to drink 20 years in their 20s on a weekend they're going to suffer low mood anxiety low energy fatigue etc well into the working week you know and that's scientifically proved you know, our bodies can't tolerate and get rid of alcohol um like it used to be able to therefore for managers put in place or a menopause champion to oversee employees and they're not performing as well as they used to you know they've got to learn that they can't drink as much they've got to le- eat less processed food there's a lot of cogs to the well-being wheel that we have to address and that managers and employees need to know about as well as employees so you can see it's quite a um it shouldn't be complicated but it feels a little bit complicated at the moment I got I've got to admit I didn't realize I knew as much about the menopause as I did until uh this issue came up with mm-hmm. Davina McCall and her television documentary and subsequent book. Uh, my late wife who suffered cancer for nearly 20 years had cancer drugs in her 30s which brought on an early menopause or a perimenopause and yeah. then she went through a full menopause in her late 40s and early 50s before she passed away. Mm-hmm. So I I saw that uh, for for so it It, you can see what the symptoms are when you're close to it um okay. and but quite a lot of dealing with it is commonsensical it, does it really need legislation i think it does it shouldn't but i think the only way to get support in the workplace is by having legislation but what legislation uh, would you want i think companies should have to have a menopause policy i think to have a it doesn't have to be lengthy and wordy you know a straightforward policy you could even incorporate menopause policy within your existing policy and that just guides if if a lady comes a female comes to you to it chances can i 
have a look at your menopause policy, our menopause policy. They've got a document there. Um, if we wait for the government to implement this, to put place legal requirements in place, we could be waiting a long, long time and a lot of people will be suffering. When I say people, I mean people, not just women, because 51% of the population will experience menopause. To what level? It varies, as I've just explained. But indirectly, 100% of the population will be affected. Work colleagues, husbands, wives, partners, mm. kids, elderly parents, everybody is affected by that female who's transitioning. It's not easy to say when the menopause happens. It, it, it's, it happens well, it's different, different for different women. But if you look at the age range uh, above 50, uh, you'll see that there are about three, three and a half million people, half of which will be women, economically inactive. So if you are dealing with this issue, mm -hmm. you can make a, an impact on the economy itself, can't you? Absolutely. And it's perimenopause and menopausal women are the biggest demographic, growing demographic in the workplace. OK. And would you go as far as Spain mm -hmm. in allowing... Uh, paid time off for menstrual issues and menopausal uh, menopause related issues re regardless self-certified paid time do you know that's a really difficult one i mean i'm speaking as a female and i'm speaking as a one who was in the 25 percent of debilitating symptoms mm. so i'm not speaking as someone who was in the 25 percent of sailing through it but i've also been an employer so what i want my employees you know in the workplace if they're really struggling they had you know, apologies for being graphic, but this is life. If they had terrible flooding, they should be allowed to go home. Yes. How, how can you navigate that? that that's yeah. really difficult. If it's more minor symptoms, I don't think, you know, if it's manageable, should we say, with some implementations put in place by the workplace, I think the key is in any workplace is to have managers and HR who are understanding. Well, I know so many women who they're scared to say that they're suffering, that they're, they're challenged by symptoms, they, they can't do the work as well as before because they're scared of losing their job. Wow. Um, and I think the pressure is released as soon as you have a menopause-friendly workplace that you can go to a menopause champion or to the HR or your manager to say, look, I'm really struggling today. Can I do flexible working? Can I come in late tomorrow? I've had a terrible sleep, feeling anxious. I do sympathise with employers. Like I say, I have been one. Mm. So, you know, employers need to have a reliable workforce. I completely understand. Um, I think with the Davina thing, I think it was brilliant what she's done. She's done two programmes now. But in the menopause educator world, we feel like, you know, there's a lot of scaremongering narrative and it's gone too far, too far the, the wrong way. The pendulum has swung and so many women are thinking they need HRT because otherwise they will get osteoporosis, heart mm. disease, all these scary mm. diseases. Um, there's still a lot of scientific evidence that hasn't proved that. Okay, well, so we, won't go, we won't go into that, but I would, I'm gonna to have to stop because we're nearly finished, but I want to give you one very important plug, and, and that is this. Catherine is a fantastic, passionate advocate for this. She knows her stuff, and she will charge just under 600 pounds to come to your business and give a proper talk a proper session to educate both managers and workers. And that's a, a bit of work that's going down very well, isn't it? People are using it Absolutely. in the north of England. Absolutely. I've worked with some phenomenal organisations. The feedback's been wonderful um, and it's essential. Don't wait for the government to make this legal requirement. That's Catherine Harland, Menopause Mentor. Bob, thank you for joining thank you us. Much, thank you, Catherine. Thank, thank you, Ben. Thanks, Sorry we had connection problems.
Uh, let's see what happens in the budget next week. Next week, the Business Unmuted is live uh, from Virtue Motors uh, BMW branch in the north of England, one of their branches, and we'll have an audience. We'll have politicians, we'll have big business leaders, and we'll find out what they thought of the budget Wednesday the 15th of March.